Daniel chapter 6. We'll begin our uh, reading there and we'll read the first three verses for this morning. And uh, we, would you believe it, we are already up to the ninth sermon concerning Daniel. And today will bring us to well, midway through the actual book. There are 12 chapters and we are it's neatly divided into actually two parts, essentially. The first half of Daniel is a like an historical account. The, the second half is are all the, the visions and dreams that God gave Daniel, which we sort of go back and, and, and share those things that God had given to him during his life as well. So <clears throat> uh, we'll be getting into a lot more prophecy in the uh, coming weeks as we look at the next six chapters. Okay, Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom in 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might uh, give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Let's go to the Lord and commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you once again. We thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. We thank you that uh, we have it in our hands and we can read uh, these words which have changed our lives. And we pray for more change. We pray for more grace to seek, to, as we seek to understand it, to apply it to our lives. And as we seek to learn more of you, we pray for your blessing upon us now. And as we seek your Holy Spirit and his guidance in these matters. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I shared already, today's story is probably one of the best known uh, stories of Daniel. And, um, and it's a much loved story in the Bible. It's probably the most consistently um, loved and popular Sunday school uh, favorite. And I'm, praying, and I'm praying that this uh, sermon today will be a blessing to you. <clears throat> so let's just recap quickly what had happened as we got to this particular point. Babylon had fallen. And had fallen very quickly. <clears throat> Belshazzar, who was who had organised the big feast uh, for all of his friends, and uh, it was, um, he was he uh, was quite confident and cocky at that stage, and and celebrating using the utensils or, or the cups and the, and the things from the temple that uh, they had taken from Jerusalem, and essentially he went from partying to fearful. And the Bible says that his his loins were loosed. Uh, which means he was, his knees were shaking. And so he, um, he was judged that evening when that writing on the wall uh, became visible. And essentially the kingdom was lost, Babylon fell, and he lost his life uh, that same night as well. So now if we look back at the uh, dream that Nebuchadnezzar uh, had, was given by God, um, we moved from the the head of gold, and remember the statue that had a head of gold and chest and arms of silver? Um, we moved to the chest and arms of silver now, the second kingdom, uh, with respect to what the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. Okay, So began with the head of gold under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and has now entered into the second kingdom of the Medo-Persians. And that's represented by the chest and the arms of silver. And it's an it's a interesting representation because the Medes and the Persians were together and the two arms represent those two 
parts of that particular kingdom. <clears throat> so, in the initial two years of this kingdom, only the first two years, it was Darius who ruled um, over this kingdom, and he only lived for two more years before he died. And so this event takes place in the first two years of, the, of this new empire that had now uh, taken over the, uh, the world. So Daniel, by this stage, was well into his 80s, and he was made one of the presidents. So essentially the, the king had sent 120 princes, what he calls princes, over the, the province of, uh, of Persia, each one in their particular area, and they were given account to three presidents. And Daniel had been made one of these three presidents, and he was considered the highest of the three because of his character, a very noble sort of character, trustworthy, wise. Um, before we dig into this chapter, it's useful to recognize the difference between the Babylonian kingdom and the Persian or the Medo-Persian empire. Babylon was what you would call an absolute rule. Okay, So it was one where the king made the decisions and had the final authority to make and break rules that he decreed himself. Like he could literally make a, a ruling in the morning off his own bat, and then he could break it and change it in the afternoon. So he, he had the ability to do anything he wanted, really. And that power was absolute. So remember, Nebuchadnezzar was quite fond of making sudden rules and decrees and things, uh, and he would change them depending on whatever circumstances uh, there was. There was never any talk in the Babylonian kingdom about um, uh, princes and, and then them re, uh, reporting to presidents and then presidents reporting to him. Um, he probably had people who were, who were rulers, but he, he had the final say and he could essentially make and break any rule that he made. So you, you'll probably remember in Daniel chapter 2 verse 13, it says, And the decree went forth, that the wise men should be slain, if you remember that one. And they saw Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Remember when he got upset um, because the wise men of his kingdom couldn't uh, decipher the dream that he had? And so he decided they're all going to die. Because he made a decree. And then he changed the decree later on. In, in 310, uh, it says, Thou, O king, uh, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet Flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. So there was another decree that he made. Um, and then in 329, it says, he made another decree about the, the people and what they should, uh, how they should be towards the God of Israel, and that they should be killed if they ever um, uh, dishonored him. Persia, on the other hand, seems to have more of a congress sort of uh, set up which was made up of these princes and presidents and they formulated the laws of the kingdom so they would come together create laws and then they would pass those laws in written format to the king the king if he was happy with them would sign them off but once he had signed them off which means it went through parliament um, and then it went to him and he signed it off he couldn't even change that decree um, because even he was subject to it. And that's the main difference between the Babylonian kingdom and the Persian kingdom. And if you wanted like a modern day sort of comparison, the Persian, the Medo-Persian kingdom would be more like, say, the US without the sort of Senate. 
So you've got Congress, it makes laws. Um, once those laws are, are, are voted upon, everyone's happy with them, they pass them to the president in the US, for instance. Once the president signs it, it becomes law and everyone is um, subject to it. So it seems as if this particular time that King Darius realized quickly the value of Daniel as a person and what value he would be to the kingdom because it says that he found an excellent spirit in him and he actually valued him above everyone else. Interesting, uh, interestingly enough. So the first question we're going to ask ourselves and the first question that came to my mind is what did Darius actually see? Um, well, he saw honesty. He saw uprightness. He saw genuineness. He saw integrity. He saw wisdom. And he probably saw a person who was sure about his faith and what he knew. And he wasn't moved. So even though things may have, um, things that he did may not have actually uh, favoured him, he knew what he believed and he was honest with everyone around him. So what might an unsaved person, maybe like Darius, see in someone that has a faith in God? Well, he sees those things. He sees maybe apart from the skills that he may have had, he sees honesty, trustworthiness. He sees diligence, maybe. Um, and these are attractive qualities, not just uh, then, but even now. Those, those are attractive qualities for any employer that we may work for. Uh, it's true then and it's true today. So I'm sure you've all experienced in your own lives um, that when you demonstrate faithfulness and honesty and integrity and, and those sorts of characteristics, apart from the skills that you may have as an individual, um, they become valuable to other people as well. And so you're valued because of those things. And your faith can be a valuable thing to others apart from employers or people who are over you. Not just, not just them, but um, our faith and the demonstration of our faith is valuable to your neighbours, your friends, your family, anyone that you come in contact with. When they see those things and they realise that you are trustworthy, for instance, um, it, it becomes valuable to them. When someone can share something with you about their own lives, trusting that you're not going to go and tell a thousand other people about it, and that you're going to be honest with them, it becomes valuable. And so our integrity and our faith, the demonstration of our faith, our lives being lived in faith becomes valuable, is a very valuable thing to people around us, even those ones who don't have any faith and don't even believe in God. We can be a blessing to the world around us just by being faithful. And this doesn't include the most precious gift that we can pass on to them, which is leading them to the Lord, which is the gospel. These blessings are simply because of the people we are called to be. And so not only can we be a blessing to them uh, from that perspective, but we can also bless them with the gospel. When they, when they become attracted to what we have, 
um, and they see the hope that's within us, while they may be are fearful about today and tomorrow, um, we can bring them and share with them why it is we are like this, why it is that we have hope, why is it that we can be joyful in the midst of you know, other people being sad, why we can be sure about the future. So remember, what you have in Christ is precious. Christ has given us something absolutely wonderful and we've been called to share that with other people. So Darius was so impressed with Daniel that he was thinking of making him head over all the kingdom. So not only um, to be to be head over the, the princes, which had to report to the presidents, but head of the presidents as well. And it seems as if um, the king had verbalized this. He's actually mentioned it to someone else uh, or maybe that had spread to other people who immediately had a problem with it. And, and, and Daniel then became a threat to them. They maybe their own ambitions. Maybe they, they thought, well, this guy's a Jew. Why is he putting, you know, why is he thinking of putting him over us? He's going to maybe do, do things that we don't like or maybe pass, pass laws or, or make decisions that we don't like. He's not like us. He's a different type of person. So they became almost desperate to stop this from happening. So it says in verse 4, then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion. And that means like something they can accuse him of against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. So once again, this points and teaches us something as well. <clears throat> Even though there may be people in this world who appreciate your life, who appreciate your attributes, your characteristics, and, and you being a Christian in this life, there will be others who are threatened by your beliefs, who are threatened by your confidence, who are threatened by your knowledge, uh, and may even go to certain lengths to make sure that you don't get the opportunity to have an influence over them uh, or a chance of advancing and it's because you may become a threat to their ambitions. But from our perspective, from, the, from God's perspective, we never need to fear that sort of stuff. We never need to fear their plans or fear what they may be thinking or fear what they may be doing uh, because the Lord knows their plans. The Lord knows their thoughts, he knows their hearts, well before they even came up with those ideas. And his care for us never sleeps, never diminishes, it never changes over time. His care for us is always perfect. So we never need fear the devices or the plans or the schemes or the things of other men. We need to simply do the things that God has called us to do. We simply need to be faithful with the things he's called us to be faithful and the rest is his. And so the problem with these people when they were trying to find something to accuse Daniel of was that regardless of how hard they looked, they couldn't find anything to accuse him of. It says he was obviously wasn't fraudulent. He wasn't a crook. He wasn't he wasn't uh, not diligent. He was he must have been a very good worker. He must have been someone who was trustworthy, someone who didn't have any side screen schemes going on. He was honest and he was faultless in things that he did and himself as a person. So what did they do? Well, they looked for something that was precious to him, something that, that he followed, which they could then manipulate and use 
to try to create a contradiction and try to actually get the upper hand on him with. And so they looked at his faith in God and the things and his faithfulness to God, and they saw that as a possible weakness that he had. And so if you remember, this card had been played already with three of Daniel's other compatriots. Remember the, the, the three who found themselves in a fiery furnace simply because they were, they were faithful to God? And so we're seeing almost a repeat of that type of story, a repeat of that type of situation. The difference is that this time, it's not three of them, it's just Daniel by himself. So verse 5 says that, Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So what they simply did was look at the law that, that Daniel was following and then tried to create a contradicting law. Okay, So there was a conflict there. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make firm a decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, which means if anyone asks any, anything else from anyone else, makes a petition, if anyone else except from you, king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which alters not, which means it doesn't change. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. King Darius seems it has had the wool pulled over his eyes. What a strange decree, though, that no one can ask, no one can make a petition of any other person or God for 30 days, except it comes straight to the king. And why would you institute such a, such a decree? Well, it's simply because of verse 5. They couldn't find any other fault in Daniel other than that he prayed and they saw and they knew that he prayed to God three times a day essentially and they knew he did it publicly so they thought that's how we're going to get him because that was an open petition to God and they knew that they could create something there they knew that the law that they had created would counter the law of God that Daniel was obeying. And he, there was no way in the world he was going to stop praying for 30 days. <clears throat> and so what in this decree would be appealing to King Darius to sign it, I wonder? Maybe it appealed to his ego. Maybe it appealed to his sense of pride or whatever else it may have been. Um, but nevertheless, when he heard that they were all in unison... They said that the presidents, the captains, and, and, and all, the, all the princes had gotten together and agreed to do this thing. It's almost like we're doing something for you, king, something precious for you, just to lift you up here a bit. Um, I think it may have gotten to his head. And he thought, oh, what a wonderful thing you've done for me, not realizing that they had lied because all the presidents were not there because Daniel wasn't there. And so they, they lied to him because of that. And what they did is they made it broad enough um, to trap Daniel because it included all gods. Okay, and remember, they had plenty of gods out there. 
they had probably 50 gods, if not more, that they all worshipped. And so this decree would have stopped all of them from worshipping their gods, simply to trap Daniel worshipping his god. And so they made it so broad that Darius didn't pick up what was actually going on. If they had said, if anyone makes you know, a petition from the God of Daniel, let's say, or the God of Israel, he might have picked up, hang on a sec, why are you doing that? But they made it that no one could actually make a petition of any God or man. And so they made it broad enough so it didn't raise suspicion because they knew that he liked Daniel in the first place. So they also knew that once the king had signed it, he was trapped by it. Even though he may have had a special affection for Daniel, he was trapped by his own signature. And so it seems as if their plan was coming together. Darius must have assumed that Daniel would have been part of this meeting, but he was mistaken. And so some, another lesson here for us. The cunning and the boldness of this plan reveals a level of deception they were willing to deceive their own king to achieve their own ends. They were deceiving themselves, right? They were deceiving their own people, essentially. Um, and that's, it reveals a level of deception that certain people in this world are capable of. Things such as hatred that motivated this plan, deceit, lies and conspiracy, um, are meant to be foreign to the children of God. They're not meant to be in our type of thinking at all. Uh, but for some people in this world, not all, just some, that, that who have gone to certain depths uh, of their fallen nature, um, these things become second nature to make deceptive plans that fool people and are created to destroy others. And from a worldly point of view, it means that as believers who don't think like this, who aren't meant to think like this, it puts us at a, almost a strategic disadvantage when you think of it. And Jesus actually said that this would be the case. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16, verse 8. We'll look at just two, two brief passages here. Um, Luke chapter 16, verse 8, where Jesus makes it clear that the children of the world think differently to the children of light. And he says in Luke 16, 8, it says, And the Lord commended the unjust steward. Remember that, that story of the, of the parable of the unjust steward? Because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Now, does that mean wiser from the perspective of, of, um, of, perspective of, uh, of true wisdom, of true knowledge, like heavenly? No, it's speaking about cunningness. It's speaking about shiftiness. It's speaking about making plans that might deceive other people to try and work your way through and get the upper hand or to make progress. And so Jesus actually says that the children of this world are in their generation wiser, more cunning than the children of light. And that is a true statement generally. Okay, So when the Lord sent his own disciples into the world to preach the gospel, he warned them that this is what they would encounter. Um, he warned them of what might come. And that is also probably true today. 
but not always. Okay, so turn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. He warned them of what might come. And in their particular day, they definitely experienced these types of things. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, there's something here for us as well. It says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. And this is applicable because uh, Brother Alan uh, shared that children's message today about, you know, we being uh, the sheep of Jesus' pasture. And he is the door to the fold. He is the one who protects us. But nevertheless, he says, I'm sending you out into this world as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents. So he's calling us to be wise, but harmless as doves. In other words, what we do, we need to be aware of what might be going on. But we should never go to the depths that other people do. We should be aware of it, but not necessarily... Um, but never ever go to the point where we harm people by our plans. So we should never go in their direction. Try and be aware of it, but never actually participate in it. So he says in verse 17, he says, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. And, but when they deliver you up, Take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. So the Lord says, look, I want you to be, you're going out, I need you to be smart, be aware of what's going on, but I want you to be perfectly innocent, because this is what may come to you. And we haven't experienced this in our lives. We tend to be living in a, a time where Christianity in our country, and this is obviously localized as well in certain parts of the world. This is not true. Other parts, this is true. But in, in for us, in our experience, uh, for my experience in living in Australia, we haven't experienced persecution like this. But it may come. And there's still a call for us to be wise here and not to be fools to be taken advantage of, but to always be innocent in everything that we possibly do. So please keep that in mind. We are always to be innocent. And don't spend your time, spend all of your time or spend, spend much of your time even um, trying to think like the world or trying to decipher what they may be doing. The more you do that, the more your, your brain is going to be trying to be trained to think like them. Don't waste your time. Let the word of God transform your thinking. Let be innocent as Daniel was innocent. Daniel knew what was going on, still went ahead and did what he was called to do. So in, in, in pretty much every case, we don't change our lives to suit the circumstances or to suit or to try and nullify the plans, the evil plans of other people. Our lives are simply called to simplicity, to simple faith in Christ. We live our lives, we, we are faithful to the Lord in every possible way, um, and we are not called to conspire to be um, to be devious, mischievous, or to be hateful in any way. So let's return to the lines then now. So I want you to notice that a couple of things here. The decree doesn't say that you know if a person makes a petition of another god or another person that they would that would that would be thrown into a lion's den. It says that they'd be thrown into the lion's den. So kings in those days. Um, used to love collecting exotic animals. And, you know, even today, there are people who love to, 
to have tigers and lions as pets. It shows some sort of power on their part. Um, when you have a wild animal that's under your control, uh, there is some satisfaction, I suppose, in that for, for certain people. And kings used to love uh, in those days to, to collect for themselves wild or exotic animals. And there must have already been a den in the Babylonian kingdom, which was already set up where the lions were already fed and maybe kept there. Um, this is probably a well-known place because it says, you know, king, you know, if someone's going to make a petition, let them be thrown into the, the lion's den. So he was probably well aware of what that lion's den was. It may have even been, I don't think it was a zoo type situation, but it may have been even there for the elimination of enemies or criminals of the kingdom. You know, when someone was, you know, an enemy of the state or when someone had maybe had been a murderer and he was brought to justice, maybe that's where they threw them into the lion's den. So what happens? So look in verse 10. Uh, Daniel chapter 6 verse 10 now says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, so he discovered what would have gone on, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did a foretime, which means before. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. So how did Daniel respond to the unjust decree? He did exactly what he had always done and did not do it in secret, but he actually did it fully out in the open. So what does it say about Daniel? It says that he was essentially honest. It says he didn't conceal what, what he knew to be, what he knew, or what he had uh, he'd done before. Everyone knew that Daniel prayed out in the open um, three times a day. It was probably a well-known fact around the place. They knew that he was a, a, a Jew. They knew that he, you know, did it maybe out in his balcony and did it, and did it uh, all the time. So he was simply honest. He wasn't trying to cover it up, maybe close it, maybe do it indoors now for the next 30 days. He simply just continued to do what he did before. He could have done it behind closed doors, I suppose, but he still chose to do it openly as he'd done before. It reveals a level of honesty, which is pretty high because he, he knew that he'd probably face the, the consequence of this new law that had come out. But it also reveals the boldness of his faith. His faith was unshakable. He did what he, he knew uh, to be right, and he did it in the open. He did it openly. He didn't cover it up. He didn't... Daniel valued his faithfulness to God even more than his own life. Even in the face of a whole community, or nation and king he continued to do the same thing as before exactly as he had done it before and it seems as if the conspirators knew his faith very well that's why they made that law they knew that he prayed openly they knew about his faith and so my question to us today to you and to me is how well do your enemies know your faith how obvious is it to them that you are a disciple of Christ, that you are a, a child of God, that you are a born-again believer who has put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, that you trust the Bible? How well do your enemies know your faith, even if you don't know who your enemies may be? If Daniel prayed openly, even when he knew it could mean his death, what about us? 
How public is your faith? You know, do we pray in front of others or do we or are we ashamed to pray in front of other people? You know, we, we give when we have meals outside in restaurants or we go eating in public food courts, which is not happening much these days at the moment, but how bold are you when you are in public? Do you give thanks for your food um, so that everyone can see? Or do you whisper something very briefly to yourself just in case you might catch someone's attention? I pray that our faith is like Daniel's. I pray that we are unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in everything we do. I pray that we share with people that if we show signs of love and affection and signs of care and concern, uh, <clears throat> when people are sick, you know, we can go to them and say, We're praying for, I'm praying for you or I, I care for you. I'll pray to my God for you. Um, are we that open with our faith? And I pray that, that we would be like that that we wouldn't be ashamed of the gospel because it has given us eternal life and it is a representation of God's amazing love for us. And that's the love that we should be sharing with other people. <clears throat> so let's go back to the story. So the conspirators probably lined themselves up ready and knowing roughly when Daniel was going to pray next. <clears throat> and it says they went there <clears throat> so they could become the witnesses that they could accuse the king to, or they could, they could accuse him to the king. <clears throat> and when they saw him um, praying out in the open, <clears throat> they immediately probably jumped for joy and they said, we've got this guy, we've got him. You know, it must be a great feeling when a plan comes together. And they probably had a, le a level of, um, of uh, confidence in what they had done because they realized they trapped the king. Daniel was now stuck. He could, if he was an honest guy, he wouldn't even deny what he did. And they had probably a number of them as witnesses before the king. So it says in verse 12, Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. And they reminded the king of this particular law. And they said, Hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within 30 days, save of thee, O king? shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, The thing is true. Yeah, it is. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, which alterest not. Then answered they and said before the king that that Daniel, I love the way they said, that Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee. He couldn't care less for you, king, uh, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. He hasn't even, has even reluctant even once to do that, that king. He's doing it three times every day. And here we see how often Daniel openly prayed uh, to God and how often he would have stopped what he was doing, including his president, presidential duties, uh, to pray to God. He literally stopped what he was doing. And I'm sure that it would have frustrated the people around him whenever he said, I have to put a stop to this, guys. I have to go and pray to God now, and I'll, I'll be back in whatever it was, half an hour or whatever he, whatever he may have taken. So they probably, because of his openness, uh, it probably would have frustrated them, but it became obvious that Daniel prayed three times a day. It was right there, right there, out in the open, regardless of whatever position he held. His life of faith, as I said before, wasn't hidden away, but ev there for everyone to see. And their hatred of Daniel becomes pretty clear when they say, that Daniel, that guy there, that's the one. 
um, that he's not one of us. He's of the captivity of Judah. So they were trying to cast aspersions on him because he was different to everyone else. <clears throat> and so it probably reveals a hatred, not just for him on a personal level, but a hatred for his people as well. Um, and that seems to, um, for some reason through history, has always been the case. I mean, you can imagine their thinking um, with respect to Daniel and the Jews. And they would have gone to the king and would have thought to themselves, these people just don't play ball like everyone else. You know, everyone else bends their rules and, and accepts worship of other gods. These people don't bend their rules. They don't accept worship of other gods. It's very offensive. You know, they, they're stuck at home on Saturdays. While we're out partying and getting drunk and doing all these things, they're at home. I mean, what are they doing at home all day on Saturday? What, what, what are they up to? You know, why do they hate our society so much? They don't join us in worship. They don't join us in our drunken parties. They don't join us even eating our food. They eat their own food, you know? And so you can see the level of hatred that may build up in people when they become suspicious of someone who's different to them. And that's been the case for the Jews throughout most of history. They've, whatever society they've been in, they haven't conformed to that society. They had different uh, uh, customs, they, had, they look different, they speak different, they pray different, they don't accept the worship of other gods like you know many of the other ones did as well. They didn't conform themselves, so they become, they become people who really don't seem to fit in. And so throughout history, the Jews have often not, not fitted in to, to societies where they lived in, um, and they were often persecuted because of it. It's happened multiple times. It happened in the Roman Empire. It's happened uh, under the Germans in, in, the, in the Second World War. It's happened uh, in, in, in Europe during the Dark Ages, especially where they were being accused of everything and even accused of starting the, the, the Black Plague that killed many millions of people. You know, it must be those guys. They're not getting sick like the rest of us. So they must have started it. <clears throat> um, people have always been suspicious of other people when they're different. And that's been the case for the Jews. But it's always true. When you live a life that's a follower of God, you are going to have things in your life different to the people of this world, different to the various customs of this world. I've been of a firm belief for a very long time that Christianity can live within any culture in this world, but there will always be cases where our faith causes us to be different. It has to, because every, every culture in the world, though it have made some wonderful things in it, though they may be nice in certain ways, will inevitably have customs that contradict what the Lord has called us to, or the life that the Lord has called us to. So the more you live for the Lord, the more contrast they will see between you and their society. And that will make them either more suspicious, more hateful, or maybe more questioning, wondering why. Let me know more. And so in this particular case, Daniel's life was so starkly different to them, they hated it and they needed to find a way to get rid of it. Okay, so remember, following Christ will cause you to be different and live differently in, the, in this world. And there's no problem with that. Use it as an opportunity to share your faith. So in verse 14, we find in the king, when he heard these words that Daniel had been accused of this thing, 
was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. What I find interesting in this is the king was not angry with Daniel for breaking the law. He became angry with himself because he had, had allowed himself to be trapped by this signing this foolish petition, which he should have realized wasn't all there or all right. If he had thought that Daniel would never have agreed to such a thing, he could have caught the conspirators red-handed. But he tried. The Bible says that he tried for the rest of the day to try to find a loophole around this particular decree, but he couldn't. And so he was subject even to this law as everyone else was, but he, as much as he tried, and as much as he had affection for Daniel and wanted him saved, he obviously liked the guy. Um, he couldn't do it. So in verse 15, it says, Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the Lord of the Medes, and the, so they've gone back to him, and they've said, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establishes may be changed. They knew that he was trying to find a loophole. They knew he was trying to find a way around it. And they reminded him, King, you can't change the law after you've signed it. And so verse 16, he had to actually obey his own law. In verse 16, it says, And the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, once again, there's an obvious um, observation that the king has made concerning Daniel's life, he will deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den. They put a massive stone in front of Daniel couldn't get out. <clears throat> and the king sealed it with his own signet. So with that, with that seal, they put a, 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 a wax seal on the door. And with the signal of his lords, the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. What's amazing in these few verses is that despite the king not being a Jew, believing in other gods, he expressed faith that God would be able to save Daniel from the lions. Now, where would he have that faith from? It may have been possible that he might have heard that God had previously saved Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from the fiery furnace. So he probably might have thought to himself, if he can save those guys from that, I'm sure it would have gone around that story, then God can save Daniel from the lion's den. That may have been the foundation from which he was um, speaking from. <clears throat> and spare a thought for Daniel just for the moment. So he's, he's been thrown into this, this den of lions they put a, a stone in front of it and they seal that stone so no one can open it until the next day. So they want to give the lions plenty of chance overnight to have their dinner, a late dinner, maybe a midnight snack. Spare a thought for Daniel who's been sealed in a what essentially would be his tomb, a certain tomb, considering the lions should have ripped him to shreds and eaten him by the morning. And with a stone at the mouth of the den, there wasn't any way he was getting out. And the stone was sealed by the king's ring, 
so they would see if anyone had tampered to try to open that door. Um, no one could rescue him. No one could rescue him without breaking the seals. Does this remind you of something similar? Ever heard of a story like that that has a similar type of setup? Well, if you're thinking the same thing as me, turn to Matthew chapter 27. <coughs> Matthew chapter 27, verse 59. Because there's someone else we know, and we know quite well, who was entombed in a very similar way. <clears throat> Matthew 27 verse 59 says, And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. This is the body of Jesus. He'd just been crucified. Verse 60 says, And laid it in his own new tomb, <coughs> which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulchre and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulchre, the guard at the tomb. Sorry, now the next day that followed, the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember uh, that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulchre be made sure unto the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Jesus, like Daniel, was entombed with a large stone at the front, with that stone being sealed <clears throat> until, in Daniel's case, the lions had done their job and finished him off. And in Jesus' case, they were hoping that that seal and that watch that was set would prove that Jesus couldn't rise on the third day and that death had done its job on him. <clears throat> so in this event, Daniel becomes a picture of what Christ would do when he was laid in the tomb, in the den of death, <clears throat> but with a stone laid against the tomb, a seal in the tomb, a watch set, and death trying to hold him in. Um, both Daniel and Jesus came out of those tombs Daniel was released from the from the jaws of the lion or freed from the jaws of the lion and Jesus from the jaws of death. Death didn't have any power over Jesus and the lions didn't have it as we'll see didn't have any power over Daniel. And that's why Acts 2:24 says whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Death could not hold him. He was the son and he is the son of God. And so death as a picture of a lion had no power over, over our saviour. And so the circumstances which led to Daniel also being thrown into the lion's den were similar to what Jesus experienced, which led him to his own crucifixion. 
the Pharisees. So, so in Daniel's case, there was the, the um, there were the presidents and the princes that conspired together to trap him, and then to use the the king and his own and the the, the law to actually uh, get rid of him and to get to, um, to to put him in the lion's den. In Jesus' day, the same thing happened. So you have in this particular case the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes and lawyers getting together to conspire to say we've got to get rid of this guy we have to work out what system we can use and so what they determined because they were under the roman rule was that they would use the roman governor Pilate to carry out their despicable plan um but what we find in jesus case is that Pilate found no wrong in christ he didn't find anything wrong with him just like darius didn't find anything wrong with daniel <clears throat> but they pressured him like they pressured Darius, and he eventually had to give in. <clears throat> so if you turn to Luke chapter 23, I just want to bring this, uh, this comparison out, because I believe it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful picture. Daniel not only in the den is, is a picture of Christ rising from the grave, but the way that Daniel was, um, was, was um, convicted is almost similar to the, the way that Christ was convicted when he was purely innocent. Luke 23 verse 1 says and this is concerning christ obviously and the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate, and they began to accuse him saying we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to caesar so they were using the roman law against jesus saying that he himself is christ a king and Pilate asked him saying art thou the king of the jews and he answered him and said thou sayest it then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. So they pressured, the, they pressured Pilate until he eventually gave in. <clears throat> so we find two characters, Daniel and Christ, being falsely accused or the law being used against them. We find people conspiring to get rid of them by pressuring the, 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 the monarchy or the, or the kings or the people who are above them. Uh, and they used an ungodly system to actually convict a godly person. The difference between, Darius, between Pilate and Darius, though, is that Pilate probably had little regard for Jesus' life. Probably saw him as another Jew who was just a troublemaker, didn't know him on a personal level. Darius, though, knew Daniel on a personal level, and because he'd been with him, had a genuine fondness for him. <clears throat> and so let's have a look and see how Darius reacts to Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. So turn back to Daniel 6.18. <clears throat> it says there, then the king went to his palace. He's gone back home. He's failed in his mission to save him and passed the night fasting, didn't he? Didn't have dinner. Neither were instruments of music brought before him. Probably was used to listening to some music at night. And his sleep went from him. Couldn't sleep. And the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? I think for a moment before we get this answer, 
Think for a moment about the admiration and affection that this king had for Daniel. It tells us here that he went back home, couldn't eat, couldn't listen to music, couldn't sleep. And the first thing he did, the crack of dawn, he gets up and runs to this den to see whether Daniel could still be alive. Had God saved him? And he cries out with a lamentable voice. He was probably almost half crying while he was saying it. Um, and he's, as he spoke the words, which tells us what he was thinking that night. Imagine what was going through his head for an entire night. Is the God of Daniel able to save him? Is this God that Daniel believes in so much able to deliver him from the lions? And to see his surprise and to his joy, Daniel responds from the other side of the stone. Verse 21, it says, Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, that they have no hurt, they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, I have done no hurt. Then was the king exceeding glad for him, and commanded they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. So Daniel responds from the inside of the den, the, the God had sent his angels to, to shut the lion's mouths. They, they didn't have any dinner that night. He was not hurt in the least. And he was innocent. Once again, there is a direct message for us with respect to our faith in Christ. You know, the Bible says that Daniel, so death didn't have any reign over Daniel in that particular case. And the Bible says that Jesus has defeated death. The grave couldn't hold him. And because of this, Death has no hold on us either. <clears throat> we can't be holden down by it either. So the Bible in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 and 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. We walk after the Spirit because the Spirit indwells us now. And so our, we, we can follow Him, we can walk after Him. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. You see, the law, the breaking of the law brings death. The breaking of the law, of God's law, which the Bible calls sin, is death. <clears throat> but because we have been saved in Christ and because he perfectly obeyed the law, the Bible now ascribes his righteousness to us. Because we are in Christ, we cannot be condemned. Because we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, we can walk in his ways. We can walk after the Spirit. If you are in Christ today, the law of sin and death has no power over you at all. For he has already won the battle. There is no battle necessary for you to win because he has won it already for you. There is no, it is no longer necessary for us to wonder or think, do we have eternal life? <clears throat> because eternal life is not gained by the us keeping the law, but because Jesus won the victory for us and we received that eternal life through him. Because death could not hold him, death can't hold us. We can enter through death's door as confidently as Daniel walked into that lion's den. 
Do you think Daniel was trembling and fearful and, and crying as they, as, they, as, they, as they led him into that den or threw him in? No. We can approach death with the same confidence because Daniel knew that God had the power to save him. And we know, and God was in that, in that lines then with him. He sent his angel to rescue him. And so we know that when we pass through death's door, God is with us on the other side. And there's no need to fear because he's already gone there before us and he holds the keys of hell and death. So Daniel walking out of that den is a wonderful testimony of the power and the love of God for his own people. And the judgment that had been designed for Daniel now had fallen upon the conspirators, those who had conspired and schemed to see him die. Daniel chapter 6 verse 24 says, And the king commanded, and they brought those men which had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives, and the lions had the mastery of them, and break all their bones in pieces, or ever they came out, ever they came at the bottom of the den. So, Unfortunately for them and their families, they received the penalty that they had planned for Daniel. Like the conspirators, the Bible says that all sinners will be judged as lawbreakers and will have to answer for their crimes. The conspirators tried to deceive the king, tried to pull the wool over his eyes, and eventually, and after, they got caught out with their lies and had to answer for their own crimes. The Bible says that just as they were judged, the Bible says that all sinners will not be able to escape the second death. And they'll be thrown into a lake of fire. Yet most people today live as if God is a fool that God can be mocked, that they can snub their noses at him, that they can speak blasphemy as much as they possibly like without ever having to, to, having to pay for that or to, or, to, or to face the consequences of disrespect, dishonor, blasphemy, lying, and whatever. Most people live as if God is a fool. But Galatians 6, 7 says be not deceived god is not mocked for whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap sin has its consequences and unless you're saved you will eventually pay for every word that you speak you will pay for every evil thought that you had you will pay for every action that broke God's commands. And ultimately, the greatest sin that will be judged will be the rejection of the way that God made for salvation. In the end, it's what we do with Christ that will determine where we go. If a person rejects Christ, rejects the only provision for salvation there is 
uh, something happening in Afghanistan at the moment where the Taliban have take, essentially taken over the entire country and there are thousands upon thousands of people rushing an airport in Kabul to be freed from that place because they fear the death which may come upon them. And that is the only way they can get out of that country at the moment. And they are fighting to get there. And there is all manner of chaos, people falling off planes as they try to hold on while they're taking off. Yet people in this world don't see the death that's coming. There is no sense of urgency in them. There is no sense of fear of the judgment that will come. So in the end, they will have to wear it. But the Bible says that there is one way that God has made. That way is Jesus Christ. And just as there is one airport in Kabul that is freeing people and, and taking people away uh, to salvation or to, to freedom, there is only one way. And if people ignore that way, they do it at their own consequence. They do it to their own detriment. They do it essentially to their own destruction because the Bible says God is not mocked. God is not mocked. And everyone that soweth to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And so we go back to the story at the end in Daniel chapter 6 verse 25 and it says, Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. In his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth. Who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And so I want to close the sermon today with a plea to those who don't know Christ as their saviour. He is the only way. He is the only door to the sheepfold. He is the only one who can save you from your own sin and from the judgment that will come. And so my prayer is that you will find that salvation today. For those of you who have put your faith in Christ, <clears throat> I want us to turn just to remind ourselves about the love that God has for us. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, and I'll just close with this passage. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. You may find yourself or maybe feeling that you are in a den of lions sometimes. Maybe you feel during these times that maybe God has forsaken you or maybe you feel as if you're struggling to get through or maybe will struggle over the coming weeks. Um, remember who is your saviour. Remember how much he loves you. Remember that that love will never change. Remember that you can trust him with all things. And even though the world around you may seem to be falling apart, within your heart, you can have the peace of God and you can have the joy that comes from the salvation in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory, in Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord continue to grant you his grace. Always trust in him. And remember, he will never leave you nor forsake you. God bless you. Look forward to being together with you soon and uh, praying for you all. Thank you once again for joining us today.